Welcome to What, Why, and How, the podcast where we unravel the intricacies of pharmacy and healthcare law and regulation. I'm your host, Seth Brown, Director of Public Affairs at the Iowa Pharmacy Association. Each month, we'll explore what changes occurred, why the action was taken, and how these changes will impact pharmacy practice. From Congress to the Iowa Legislature, we aim to make sense of the often confusing and complex legislative and regulatory space. And knowing the what, why, and how, we can navigate the legal landscape together. Hello and welcome, and thanks for tuning in today. The Iowa legislative session kicked off last week, and we were expecting a busy session. And ahead of Pharmacist Day on the Hill, it's most appropriate for us to provide a legislative briefing from our most talented contract lobbyist, Kate Walton, from 80 Walton Lobbying and Government Relations. Um, between Kate and her partner, Matt Eady, they have over 50 years of com- combined government relations experience. And we at IPA have been lucky enough to have them as contract lobbyists for the association for about five years. Six, I think. Six years. So extra years of bonus. (laughs) These two have a wealth of knowledge to share. So I'll pass it over to Kate to provide a briefing on the current state of the Iowa legislature and what to expect during IPA's Pharmacy Day on the Hill and throughout the session. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for the nice introduction. Um, We're just going to move quickly through um, an advocacy overview for the 2024 legislative session. What this uh, presentation focuses largely on is sort of the context in which advocacy will be taking place uh, for the Iowa Pharmacy Association and for you as participants in the Day on the Hill. Um, I will leave it to Seth, who is the expert on the more technical pieces of the legislation and the uh, the talking points for what uh, specific things we'll be advocating and be talking more at a high level about the politics and the atmosphere at the Iowa General Assembly. So first up, uh, this is just a photo of uh, me. Uh, my name is Kate Walton, uh, my business partner, Matt Eighty, and then uh, Maddie Bradley, who is our legislative associate. Um, she has worked with us part time for the last two sessions. Uh, in this session, she has now joined the firm full time and we're we're very pleased to have her with us. Uh, this slide, is, for, for those who might be just listening, is a depiction of Governor Reynolds' margin of victory uh, in the last election. Governor Reynolds was running uh, for re-election against a less well-known, uh, less well-funded candidate uh, and, and was able to win by 19 percentage points. What that allowed for her to do was campaign up and down the ticket for the other federal statewide office holders and uh, federal office holders and statewide office holders. So, for example, as many of you know, um, long the longest serving Iowa Attorney General Tom Miller was defeated, as was the longtime uh, state treasurer Mike Fitzgerald. Um, right now, uh, the state auditor Rob Sand is the only uh, statewide Democratic uh, office holder. If you are a political junkie like me. Uh, his margin of victory was about 2,500 votes, and if you and he grew up in the Decora area. And if you look at where there is an outlier in votes against the kind of statewide averages, it is uh, his home area that delivered him the margin of victory there. Um, also, for the first time, all of the congressional and U.S. Congress and U.S. Senate members are Republican. This is the first time since the 50s that that is the case. Uh, This slide here is a visual depiction of the Iowa House of Representatives. Uh, The the, um, House Republicans extended their majority to 64 Republicans. Uh, It previously had been 60 Republicans. 
25 of those in the House Republican Caucus are new to the State House. Um, a, a note here, Governor Reynolds took the historically unprecedented step of endorsing in a primary against seven House uh, incumbent House Republican members over their uh, position on school choice or vouchers. And six of those incumbents were defeated. Um, Jane Bloomingdale was the seventh, uh, and she was able to win by about 250 votes. Uh, but with that, there are 25 new House Republican members. On the Democratic side, there are 36 Democrats, and 15 of them are new to the State House. So what that shows is that in the Iowa House, fully 40% of the, the members of the Iowa House of Representatives are serving their first term. That isn't uncommon after a redistricting year, but even so, this is a pretty large percentage of freshman legislators. Uh, in the House in particular, that gives us you know, uh, an opportunity and a challenge. You have an opportunity to educate new legislators on issues that are important to you and the challenge that you have um, a lot of new legislators with a lot of incoming uh, who you have to spend time uh, having them more aware of your issues. In the Iowa Senate, the margin is a little bit different. There are 50 uh, Senate members. There are 34 Republicans. Um, the Republicans also extended their majority. They had been at 32. Um, just another little political tidbit. If all 34 Republicans, Senate Republicans are present, they don't need the Democrats to conduct business. Uh, it is a supermajority and 34 is uh, represents a quorum. Um, it is a it is a very substantial majority in the Iowa Senate. Um, as would be the case, uh, the the there is less turnover in the Iowa Senate. There are five new Republicans uh, in the Senate. There are two new Democrats in the Senate of their 16 members. For our purposes, we did not count uh, people who had previously served in the Iowa House who chose to run for the Iowa Senate as being new, because even though they're new to the Senate, they're not new to the process. So that's kind of the asterisk next to, to this bit of information. Uh, this here shows the Republican leadership. Um, you have uh, Senator Jack Whitver from the Ankeny Grimes area who is the Senate Majority Leader, uh, is a really powerful position in the Senate. You have Senator Amy Sinclair, who is the Senate President. Uh, Senator Sinclair became Senate President when Senator Jake Chapman was defeated in the last election. On the House side, you have House Speaker Pat Grassley, who is the grandson of Senator Charles Grassley. And then the Majority Leader is Matt Winschittle. On the Democratic side, um, uh, the House Democratic leader is Jennifer Confers from the Windsor Heights area. The Senate Democratic leader is now Pam Yoakum. During this legislative interim, um, Senator Zach Walls was voted out of his position as Democratic leader over a dispute on some staffing issues. Uh, so Senator Yoakum is the, the new Democratic leader. Uh, Senator Walls does continue to serve in the Iowa Senate. So one of the pieces that is sometimes surprising to people is to learn um, about how challenging it is to pass a bill. Um, and this is one of the things, uh, you know, Seth is an excellent uh, new young lobbyist, um, but this is one of the things that we tell him, it is really hard to pass a bill. Uh, and, and this gives you a little bit of information about that. Pretty consistently, if, if you look back historically, around 7% of the bills that are introduced go on to be signed by the governor. Uh, that number may vary just a little bit, but that's about where it is. 
So, for example, in the 2023 legislative session, um, almost 1,900 bills were introduced and 169 of them went on to be signed by the governor. Uh, so the process by design is designed to be challenging. Uh, I know you all are likely familiar, but in the Iowa legislature, we have funnel deadlines for uh, policy bills, ways and means which are taxes and fees and appropriation spending bills are exempt from the funnel. But for policy, uh, bills for the first funnel, bills have to be reported out of one committee entirely in order to be uh, eligible for consideration. That, that funnel deadline takes place about six weeks after the start of the legislative session. The second funnel deadline is a little bit more challenging. The bill has to be voted out of either the full House or the full Senate and then uh, voted out of committee in the other chamber in order to remain eligible for consideration for the rest of the legislative session. And so by the time we get to the second funnel deadline, we've got a pretty good idea of the policy bills that are likely to move on to final passage, but there's always an exception to that. And, and some of you may remember the Pharmacy Practice Act, which was a significant priority for the association, uh, cleared the second funnel deadline, and then we just had a bugger of a time getting it voted on by the full Senate. So I know that Seth will give you more information about that, but just because a bill clears the second funnel, uh, there is still the hurdle to go of uh, getting it voted on by that second chamber uh, and sent to the governor's desk. It's always a reminder, things take time, things take time. Um, another thing that is also surprising, I know um, as pharmacists, you all are uh, data, science, and number driven. Uh, so that's kind of another piece that we're gonna be going over here. Um, in the 2023 legislative session, 164 amendments were introduced during floor debate. Um, of those, only 12% were adopted, so that's a pretty low number. Of the 143 Democratic-sponsored amendments, only one was adopted. Uh, it was uh, Representative Sue Cahill from the Marshalltown area on an education policy bill that ended up not passing the Senate. So this tells us that the most important place to work to influence legislation if we're trying to have it amendment amended takes place at the subcommittee and full committee level. By the time a bill makes it to the full House or the full Senate, amendments are unlikely. Um, they, you know, obviously they still do happen, but uh, where our work really takes place to get a bill perfected is at that committee level. Uh, this just shows you the governor's 2023 uh, priorities. I won't read them to you, but uh, I will say that Matt and I were at a social event over the legislative interim with the governor's staff, and they had a list of 12 or 13 things uh, that were their priorities for 2023, and only one of them wasn't enacted. Uh, the governor in 2023 proposed a fairly substantial and wide-ranging agenda and was successful in having the legislature adopt much of it. For 2024, we are, uh, as, as of this recording, are on uh, day one of week two. Uh, and so we will see more of her prior, of the governor's priorities emerging. Um, the items listed for you here on this screen are what she highlighted in her condition of the state address um, on the first Tuesday of the legislative session. Um, another thing to talk about, um, and I certainly recognize and understand that money in politics can be uh, something that there are varying levels of comfort with, but to emphasize the importance of um, political activity and, and also political giving, 
uh, as it relates to uh, the Iowa Pharmacy Association Political Action Committee. Um, you know, it is it is part of the reality for those elected officials that they have to raise resources to fund their reelection campaigns. Um, and the slide that is here in front of you, I thought was particularly interesting and wanted to share it with you all. Um, you know, I know being interested in numbers that um, right now women represent only about 30 percent of the contributions to Iowa uh, political, uh, you know, political action, legislators and so forth. Uh, and that tracks nationally with what uh, what we see in national data. And there's a, a visual there that shows um, 2022 campaign funds donated by women. Um, and to me, it is an interesting data point that also about 30 percent of women holding statewide and legislative office uh, of women hold office uh, in Iowa. But with that, we have seen um, this legislature, and I will just say anecdotally, uh, really try to promote and support their female leaders. Um, you obviously, on the Democratic side, um, both the House and Senate uh, caucuses are led by women. Uh, on the Republican side, you see the uh, Senate President Amy Sinclair. And then we have listed here those committee chairs um, that are chaired by women. So there are 44 committees um, and 10 of them are chaired by women. So it, it's an interesting piece when you look at the political puzzle that, um, you know, women's voices are important in this space, um, but but also, you know, the broadly speaking, that that level of political engagement and contributions to, to the Pharmacy Association's Political Action Committee are really meaningful as we work our way through a large number of priorities in the upcoming legislative session. And with that, I will turn it back to Seth. Thank you, Kate. I really appreciate the presentation. Always very insightful information. Um, as you all um, will see in the links, uh, this will be part one of the Pharmacy Day on the Hill briefing. Uh, this will also appear on the What, Why, and How podcast. Um, so we'll have two sections of this. The next will be a briefing that is pharmacy specific now that we have the context and the background of the larger legislature. So thank you, Kate, for coming in and uh, providing that information. Uh, we will see you in part two. Thank you. Hi, everyone. This is Seth Brown, Director of Public Affairs with the Iowa Pharmacy Association. Thank you for joining me for the final part of this legislative briefing series on the 2024 Iowa Legislative Session. This portion provides a few pointers for effective advocacy and goes on to discuss IPA's legislative priorities. First, I wanna talk about effective advocacy strategies and how to talk to legislators. And to begin this, I wanna start by acknowledging that as pharmacists, you know much more about the world of pharmacy than most people. Keep that in mind when you go into conversations with legislators. They wanna hear your perspective and they wanna know your knowledge. So take a deep breath, stay calm and provide the information with confidence. You are the experts on these topics. With that being said, it's easy to go into your delivery and hit your stats and talking points after you've seen this briefing and practice a few times. So start by introducing yourself, telling the legislator where you're from and make a little small talk, maybe compliment their shoes. They are people too, so just be genuine and have a conversation like you would with anybody else. When it is time to explain your issues, lean on your provided talking points that we'll send and explain in this briefing. These can be used as your fallback at any time. And while talking points are useful and comfortable, they're much more effective when accompanied with personal anecdotes. 
If you have stories you can tell that highlight the issues, absolutely share them. They will help the lawmakers remember the issues better and they'll provide additional context. Once you have explained the issue and supplemented with personal examples, it's perfectly appropriate to make the ask. For each priority, we will clearly outline what you can ask from your legislators to further IPA's legislative priorities. This might look like, will you please support the Pharmacy Practice Act when it comes to a vote on the Senate floor? And after you make this ask, they may have questions. So try to respond to those as best you can and just be clear and concise. Get your main point out and then supplement with examples and any proof points that are provided in your packet. And at any time, if you're unsure of the answer to a question, just be honest. Tell them you're not sure, but IPA would be happy to provide that additional information and answer that question. Just make a note of that and pass it on to IPA, and we can follow up with that legislator after. So now that you know how to talk to legislators, we'll now go into what to talk to them about, namely IPA's top legislative priorities for the 2024 legislative session. And so this year, the IPA Legislative Advisory Committee and the Board of Trustees have approved three top priorities. First, modernize the Iowa Pharmacy Practice Act by passing House File 555, protect Iowa Medicaid pharmacy reimbursement, and also prevent pharmacy benefit manager or PBM abuses. Our Pharmacy Practice Act Modernization Bill was introduced last session as House File 555. The bill passed the House 86 to 10 before going over to the Senate. The bill passed through the Senate Health and Human Services Committee unanimously. Once it got over there, though, we encountered opposition from a small but vocal minority last session, and given the size of the bill and the nature of the topic, the bill sponsor decided it was best to wait so we could do additional education on the bill over the interim. This is not uncommon as the last Practice Act modernization effort took nearly four years. We are moving much more efficiently than that effort, so we just need to keep along and make sure that we keep advocating for this priority. So House File 555 is currently waiting for a vote by the full Senate. We expect this bill to come to a vote soon, so this is a great opportunity to encourage its early passage. And I do want to note that an amendment has been filed, so it will return to the House. So what exactly does this bill do? The bill aligns the pharmacy regulatory model with other practitioners in the state and allows you to practice according to your full education and training. Okay, so what exactly does that mean? Essentially, the bill removes burdensome restrictions on pharmacy practice. It does things like permits reasonable therapeutic substitutions, so you can switch from tablets to capsules or types of inhalers or nasal sprays. It cuts red, tapes, red tape on filling requirements and drug product selection sections of the code. Most importantly, it adopts a standard of care framework, and this essentially means that the pharmacist's actions must conform to that of a reasonable and prudent pharmacist, and it provides the ability to dispense, administer, or prescribe in accordance with the appropriate standard of care. It also allows statewide protocols to be developed outside of the code, so regulation keeps up with pharmacy practice. It does make several other small technical and structural amendments that we won't need to go into in depth. One thing to note 
there is substantial anti-vaccine sentiment in the legislature this session. So you should know House File 555 does not change vaccine and immunization authorities. It was necessary to remove this uh, expansion to keep these uh, the same. We do know that this has uh, progressed the bill and helped us advance it. So a few talking points that you can lean on when you go into these conversations with legislators. Since the Iowa Pharmacy Practice Act's last complete update nearly 40 years ago, pharmacist education and training has transformed drastically. All pharmacists now graduate with a doctorate degree and training to perform clinical services in a wide variety of practice settings. IPA supports modernizing the Iowa Pharmacy Practice Act to cut red tape, align with other healthcare practitioners in the state, and match the evolving practice of pharmacists to improve patient access and outcomes. So here are the main talking points that you want to emphasize. These should be included in your packet, so study up and fall back on these during your meetings. First, emphasize the need for modernization. The last major update to the Practice Act was in 1986, nearly 40 years ago. We have obviously seen drastic changes in education and training since then, so this is long overdue. Second, Something that really resonates with Republican with the Republican majority is cutting red tape and getting the government out of the way of practice. So removing these barriers will create efficiencies in the workforce. It will also attract healthcare professionals to Iowa, which is much needed. So for the students attending Pharmacy Day on the Hill, this is an important bill for you. Legislators have a huge interest in ensuring you stay and practice in the state. Let them know that allowing you to practice at the level of your education will make you want to stay. Another consideration is that all other healthcare practitioners in the state are regulated under a standard of care model. Let them know pharmacists are regulated differently than other healthcare practitioners in Iowa currently, and we just want to align. Most importantly, the current Practice Act prevents patients' access to care. Because of the overly burdensome regulation, patients deserve access to pharmacists and their full training, so we need to modernize this code section. As mentioned, the bill is in the Senate, so ask your senators, will you support House File 555 when it comes to a vote on the floor? And for your House meetings, tell your representative, last session, House File 555 passed the House 86 to 10, but an amendment has been filed. Will you support House File 555 when it comes back to the House? And I do want to make one last note here, and there's no need to bring these up preemptively, but in case you are asked, you should know this is not a scope expansion bill. It just restructures the regulatory model to allow for changes in practice. House File 555 does not change vaccine and immunization authorities, and as mentioned, this has been an ongoing topic. You might receive a question about it. And again, if you're asked a question that you don't know the answer to or you're uncomfortable answering, just tell them that you're not sure and you'd have to reach out to someone at IPA. Send them to Seth Brown, the Director of Public Affairs. He'd be happy to take their questions. Next, Medicaid pharmacy reimbursement. Across the country, states look to Iowa Medicaid's prescription drug policies and managed care. Iowa Medicaid's current model utilizes a state-managed survey which prevents the abuses prevalent in private sector PBM relationships. IPA supports laws, regulation, and policies that ensure sustainable, accurate, and transparent pres prescription drug reimbursement under Medicaid. 
This includes maintaining patient access by paying pharmacies for the cost of the drug plus a reasonable dispensing fee. IPA supports Medicaid appropriations, which fund prescription drug reimbursement in alignment with the most recent state managed survey, which indicated $10.97 per prescription or a $2.4 million appropriation by the state. So a few talking points to hit here. The Iowa Medicaid model accounts for the cost of the drug product using the average acquisition cost as well as the overhead associated with a professional dispensing fee, referred to as the cost to dispense. This model is transparent and it's accurate because it utilizes pharmacy financial data through the survey to make its determination of cost. Therefore, we want to ensure the survey finding is adopted. Most recently, based on 2021 data, we saw a 59 cent increase per prescription. This amount went unfunded in last year's budget, so we are seeking 2.4 million to account for the missed year. So Medicaid reimbursement makes up approximately one third of a pharmacy's total coverage on average. So given the current state of a community pharmacy in Iowa and expected pharmacy closures, Medicaid reimbursement below costs jeopardizes patient access to the pharmacy and its services. So here are your talking points for Medicaid pharmacy reimbursement. You would want to emphasize that the Iowa Medicaid model is transparent and accurate, and we want to ensure this model continues. Failing to follow the survey just jeopardizes the accuracy of the survey. It's also worthwhile to note, according to data from Mike Andreski, faculty member at Drake University College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, in collaboration with the Health Professions Tracking System Center at the University of Iowa, the state of Iowa has seen a 13% decrease in pharmacies in the state since 2008. The state of community pharmacy in Iowa handout shares more alarming data, which we'll reference in the PBM section further, but it's worth mentioning here because Medicaid reimbursement makes up so much of a pharmacy's total coverage. Given the current state of community pharmacy in Iowa and expected pharmacy closures, Medicaid reimbursement below cost jeopardizes patient access to pharmacies and its services. So your ask when you go to your legislator, um, Senate or House would be, Will you support appropriating the funds for the Medicaid pharmacy reimbursement increase in this year's appropriation bill? Now, on to pharmacy benefit managers, which many are all too familiar with. As mentioned, data from Mike Andreski, faculty member at Drake University College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, in collaboration with the Health Professions Tracking Center at the University of Iowa, indicates that the state of Iowa has seen a substantial decrease in pharmacy access across the board. Notably, there has been a 19% decrease in rural pharmacies of all types and a 38% decrease in independent pharmacies. Additionally, IPA conducted a survey in October of community pharmacy expectations ahead of 2024. The results were alarming. 40% of responding pharmacies reported expectations to close or sell within the year, and 23% have already cut services. This trend can be attributed to reimbursement below cost and other unsustainable business practices conducted by PBMs. It is critical we hold PBMs accountable and ensure pharmacies have an opportunity to cover their costs. Patients need pharmacy service, and this access is a jeopardy. IPA has long fought for PBM reform. Most recently in 2022, we passed a PBM bill that increased data collection and oversight authority for the Iowa Insurance Commissioner. 
The insurance division has since collected complaints from pharmacies, analyzed them, and taken enforcement actions in many instances. This data has already been beneficial this legislative session. The Commissioner of Insurance presented the data to representatives in the first week of session. He shared over 72,000 complaints were collected, mostly regarding under reimbursement. He also shared that this number of complaints in any other industry would be considered, quote, unacceptable. So in this effort, the division has also introduced their own PBM bill, House Study Bill 536 and Senate Study Bill 3079 that ensure that they can collect the data the legislator intended them to collect in 2022. Most notably, the bill prohibits retaliation by PBMs against pharmacies that submit complaints to the division. IPA supports this bill, but acknowledges that more must be done. And I want to note that IPA and other stakeholders anticipate another PBM bill to be introduced this session addressing pharmacy reimbursement, payment for services, and prompt PBM, PBM responses, among other measures. As of the time of this recording, the bill is yet to be introduced, but we need to encourage legislators to support PBM legislation across the board. We have substantial momentum on the PBM front, but we need to call for urgent action to ensure pharmacy viability and access to care for patients. So these are the points that you'll need to emphasize when you have your discussions about PBMs. It's important to acknowledge that pharmacy payment, the pharmacy payment model and PBMs are complicated. So take the time to explain what PBMs are, what they were formed to do, and what is now happening in practice. PBMs are middlemen that were originally formed to process claims and manage the drug benefit for insurers. Since then, they have consolidated and stifled competition to their own benefit, resulting in increased costs for patients and lower reimbursement for pharmacies. We have seen the impacts of abusive PBM practice in the data from Drake and IPA's survey, but be sure to reference this data in the insurance division's complaint collection as you have these conversations. To address the current trend, we must provide a reasonable process to obtain reimbursement at cost. It is extremely important to focus on patients in this conversation. Patients rely on pharmacy services. Pharmacy closures will result in negative patient health outcomes and increased healthcare costs. Be sure that legislators know that. And lastly, share personal examples and anecdotes that illuminate this issue for this priority and the rest. I think many in the community pharmacy setting will have plenty of stories and examples to share. As mentioned, the division has introduced their PBM bills, House Study Bill 536 and Senate Study Bill 3079, which IPA supports. But we need it needs to be known that more must be done. So ask your legislators to support these bills and additional PBM bills that account for pharmacy acquisition costs that are yet to be introduced. And just to reemphasize, excuse me, I also want to touch on a few other policy positions IPA has adopted. And there's no need to go in depth on these to legislators unless you were first asked. But I do want to mention it in case you do get a question. In recent years, we have seen restrictions on the 340B drug pricing program. IPA supports legislation that ensures the intent of the 340B program is not further eroded by contract restrictions that limit access to contract pharmacies. Another issue is the pharmacy workforce. 
Patient safety is at the core of the pharmacy profession, but it is compromised without adequate support. IPA supports efforts to address shortages in the pharmacy workforce. Next, professional autonomy. Pharmacists have the authority and the obligation to use their training, education, and experience to make clinical decisions for safe and effective patient care. IPA opposes legislation, regulation, or policies that limit the ability of pharmacists to exercise professional autonomy. Additionally, white bagging and brown bagging. Drug distribution models known as white bagging and brown bagging undermine hospital patient safety protections and jeopardize patient care. IPA supports prohibitions on third-party mandated white and brown bagging. Again, if you are asked a question you do not know the answer to, just tell them that you're not sure and have them ask Seth Brown with IPA. I'm happy to field their questions. All right, you've made it to the end of IPA's 2024 legislative briefing. If you are attending Pharmacy Day on the Hill, we look forward to seeing you there. And whether you make it or not, be sure to keep up to date on IPA's legislative priorities by checking our bill tracker. This provides an overview of the bills we have declared on or are monitoring. As always, please reach out with any questions and thank you for joining. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the What, Why, and How podcast so you don't miss an episode. From PBMs to the Board of Pharmacy, we have an exciting slate of topics and guests ahead. If you enjoyed today's episode, share it with a colleague or friend. Stay connected with IPA through our social networks and add me on LinkedIn or Twitter to further the conversation. I'm Seth Brown, and now you know the what, why, and how.